0: Good morning. This morning I invite you to turn to page 1081. We're going to read from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2. And I'm going to read through it twice. And I'm going to invite you, after the first round, we're going to have a pause. And just to take a deep breath and let it run over you again. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave up himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, friends. My name's Tim, if we haven't met, and I like fifth graders. I think they're great, uh, most of the time. I also spent most of my week on Mackinac Island with like 60 of them. This is uh, our oldest and I, by the bridge there, and uh, we went on this big field trip, and it was a production. It went well, mostly. Who's been to Mackinac Island? Everybody? Yeah, Mackinac, Mackinac, you know, whatever. Great, great. And so you know that it, it is known uh, for, what's it known for? It starts with an F, fudge, right? And so, but I want to take you back in time, and it was known for something else that also started with an F many, many years ago, about 200 some years ago. Come on, boots with the fur, right. So they were, it was known for being a place, a hub for fur trading. And this was big, big business. So much so that the British and the French and the Native Americans and the uh, newfound Americans would be the ones to say, we want to be in control of this. So it was after the revolution, about four years later, after we won the Revolutionary War, that finally the British got kicked out of what is Fort Mackinac, which is this giant white expanse on the top of your screen there. Forget about those buildings below. Most of them weren't there in 1800. But then, the Americans uh, occupy this fort for a number of years, strategic, fur is being traded, all is well. But communication isn't as rapid in those days, and so we roll around to the year of 1812, which there's another war. We go to war with Great Britain again, but the folks in Mackinac don't know this, and so in that giant fort, there are 47 troops. And in the middle of the night, on July 17th, 1812, ships come from the north, surround the island, sneak up the hill. On top of that hill, you'll see a red arrow there on the next screen. They gather up there with a cannon above the fort and surround the fort. And they have over 600 British, French, and Native American troops, and they in the morning knock on the gate of the fort and say hello, you are surrounded. You can surrender or die. Good morning. And so the British take back Fort Mackinac. They established a second fort which is on top of the island. You'll see this here, it's called Fort Holmes. And down that that open uh, cut in the trees is the fort. So they could aim their cannons directly at these folks and then say to them you need to leave It is time for you to surrender. Your other option is death, surrender or die. Now if you're like me, I get it, it's 47 to 600. They have cannons above you and around you. You should surrender, but there was something in me as I heard this story, and maybe I've seen too many westerns or really like Davy Crockett in the Alamo as a kid, where I was like, well no, that's not what you do. You'd never surrender. You stand and you fight. And if I'd imagine there's something in that, uh, that vein in you as well, those of us who would rather eke it out for fight and control, even unto self-destruction, never surrender. That's in me somewhere, and it may be in you as well. And I don't think it's the best posture to take. Neither did the Colonial Army. They left, thankfully, and they had a month to leave, and then they would come back and retake the fort later. But I'm sure they did not like this idea of surrender, and I would guess we don't like it much either. And yet, that is where Paul takes us in Ephesians chapter five, to that very invitation. And we'll get there. So we've been working our way through Ephesians, this really beautiful letter that we get from Paul to the church in Ephesus. And it is very, very rich. And we start off chapter 5 today with those two verses that Lynn read for us, right? Follow Christ's example in all that follows. Now, we see, um, just like any really well-written book, there's structure inside of it. So, Paul wasn't making a PowerPoint. He doesn't have bold and italics and pictures, so he has to structure this book in a particular way to emphasize particular things. The structure matters. And so, first we have the book of Ephesians. And as our series title belies, this is how we are made alive in Christ, made one people in Christ, that we are made new in Jesus Christ, and under that heading, we have this particular subset. This is chapters four to six, kind of the second half of the book, where we do this kind of, here's what is new in you. Here's what is old. Here's what you can put on and take off. Troy talked about that last week with invitation. Is there something to put on and something to put off now that you have found living and growing in Jesus Christ? There is, and so most of what is in these two, three chapters are examples of this, demonstrations of this, not ways to earn God's love, for God is good and finds us and rescues us, as we have sang, for nothing we have done on our own, but ways to demonstrate that we have found new life in Jesus Christ, a way to live. And then, particularly in chapter five, we go down the structure even more, and here we have imitate Christ, that, the primary way to figure out how then shall we live is to follow the example of Jesus. What does Jesus do and how do we follow that? We see that highlighted for us in verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 5. And we go down through this chapter, which you will in just a minute, and we get to the end of it, which is verse 21 through 23, or through 33, and this is an example of what this looks like. A relational exhibit A, if you will, which has to do, in this case, with marriage. And so we will get there as well. So, does that sound like a decent way to move our way through this? Okay, don't be too scared by surrender or die. But we will return to that. So, uh, we begin this book, and kind of verse 1 through 8, we have some... Some ways in which we are to live, put off foolish talk, joking, coarse joking, but rather replace them with thanksgiving, right? There's not, not, not to be greed, but generosity. Some great ways that Paul is laying out. Here's how you demonstrate that you are following Jesus. Then we get to verse eight, and we get one of these texts that gets pulled out in a really good way, right? For you were once darkness, but you are light, in the Lord, live as children of the light. This beautiful invitation to take up what is ours and living in the light. Then, where we opened our gathering this morning. This is verse 13 and 14. But everything exposed to the light becomes visible. Everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why we confess we're able to come to the Lord and confess, and then continue to sing because God is merciful, and so we're being formed as those who are able to bring things into the light. And then we have this, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you, a song that may have in the early Christian liturgies followed confession to say, awake for the light of Christ is for you. Live in the light, and so, We would live. And so the text continues, just walking through the first half of chapter five. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Paul continues to say, not this, but this. Put off this way of living and put on this way. So just continuing to give tons of examples and metaphors of how then it means to live and follow Jesus. In verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So Paul here is saying, hey, that's not a great way to live. Because what they would have seen is being under the control of of, in this case, wine or alcohol, but instead be under the control of the Spirit. Paul isn't making a a prohibition on all drinking for all time, but saying, who's in control? If you're in a place where the control is not in your hands, nor the Spirit's hands, but in the hands of the substance you're under, that's not the way to live. But instead, be under the control of the Spirit. Make that the controlling way. So, and then we respond. I love this text. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are songs, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. That this is what we respond with. And so we do. We sing. And we are people who sing instead of keep silent. So, that takes us up through the first bit of chapter five. Again, don't live as unwise, but as wise. Put off this way and put on this way. And then Paul says, like any good communicator and pastor, here are some really tangible examples of how you do this. Here is relational exhibit A. Now, here's where structure matters. And... How sometimes our Bibles, which have been translated and have little chapter breaks and headings and things like that, are not always helpful. Troy touched on this a bit last week. In your Bible, that what comes next in verse 21 or possibly 22, depending on where the translation committee decides to break up the text, may say something like this Instructions for Christian Households, the Christian marriage. As if to say, this is how it is for all time and in all places. When instead, I think what that does is allows us to mentally break off what comes next and pull it out of the structure of the letter and use it however we in our culturally formed way want to. And that's why we start with the structure. Because this is something that happens and that Paul shares in a particular way as an example of what it means to follow Jesus and Jesus' example. When we begin to get away from that, things go off the rails. Because what follows is one of those texts that often gets pulled out and weaponized against people, particularly in our past couple hundred years in the Western world, particularly against women. And that's not the thing that I think Paul is after and that's not what we're after today here either. This talks about a marriage relationship. Now, when I say that, that's a weighted thing. In so many ways, the church implicitly probably talks too much about marriage, making it feel that like, oh, if you're married, then you're actually fully part of this community. And we wanna say no, you are part of this community. The church is full of people throughout history, single, married, divorced, recovering, etc. This is your home. So we talk too much implicitly about marriage, so it seems exclusive. And on the flip side of that coin is we probably don't talk enough about marriage. We pray for our marriages in this community as a staff. Often they show up in the prayer walls and we care for you. We want to nurture that relationship as a big part of what life is for many people. And so marriage really does matter. So we hold those two things in tension. And yet marriage as we see it in the first century here is, is interesting and is slightly different than what we hold it up as today. This is where we move from our structure mattering, still does, but also the context matters. So, in the background of this particular letter, when we're about to read or they were about to hear in Ephesus, words like, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. I'm already getting some prickly vibes on the submission thing. How does this all work out? So in the context, we see two things in the background, two very powerful forces. One, we have the Roman patriarchy. We even have words that I remember from history class called the the patrofamilius. Basically, the man is the king of the household in the Roman world. Inheritance, decisions, money, etc. flow through the married, eldest man of the house. For some of us, this has been the dominating narrative of our lives. That's in the background of this letter and is very, very strong. The other side is particular to Ephesus. Now, we've talked as we've looked at Ephesus through 1 Timothy and now through the book of Ephesians, that in the backdrop of Ephesus, there is a huge temple looking out over the city as the big house does over Ann Arbor. This is the temple of Artemis, one of the the wonders of the ancient world. Huge, imposing, economic driver. You can't get away from it. And in this temple, the god Artemis is worshipped. Artemis, female god, those who staffed the temple most likely were all male as well. And there was kind of a reverse domination thing going on in this thing, where the women exclusively only had power in the religious world of Ephesus, and the men had none. And were quite subservient, as we'll see later. And so in the background of this are two different narratives. There's the Roman patriarchy, and there's also the Artemesian matriarchy. And that's the world this church is trying to follow Jesus in. We know this because allegiances are demanded, right? U of M or Michigan State. This is what's in front of us as Michiganders. But I think what's happening, if you would imagine with me, if you will, is that it's not just Michigan and Michigan State anymore. What happens, metaphor only goes so far, is let's just pretend that in the middle of that giant rivalry, Grand Valley State becomes a D1 athletic competitor. Now, we can all go to Grand Valley, go to their games, and have a secondary allegiance, most kids do, most adults do, to Michigan or Michigan State. But if Grand Valley became a D1 school, we would have an existential crisis in what shirts to wear and buy and games to watch, because we would then have to make a choice. And so I, I would posit to you that this is somewhat of what's happening to the people in Ephesus. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying that we have to make, we can't do this, and we can't do this? Yes. Your paradigms cannot hold the new thing that Jesus is doing. I love you, Grand Valley. I don't want to put you quite that high. But the paradigms don't work anymore. There's something new being brought forward. And that's what Paul is getting at. And so we, too, don't need our existing paradigms. It's hard to think outside of those. But what Paul is doing is saying the Christian marriage is something new entirely. It is this concept of mutual surrender that you have never seen in the Roman patriarchy nor in your religious life, Ephesus, of the Artemesian matriarchy. Those models will not work for Paul. So we look at the text. Verse 21 and 22 are paired together in our early Greek manuscripts. Go to the next slide. It says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As the text reads today, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. We can use that word submit. We can use the word surrender. There's a self-giving, a self-sacrificing that we see brought up here in verse 21. It's also where we started our text in verse one and two, if you'll remember. Christ gave himself up as an offering, follow Jesus in love. So our structure matters and informs this. In the early Greek manuscripts, that word submit or surrender is actually not in verse 22. Translators have pulled it in, and it's footnoted in, in your Bible. It's not a secret, um, but that it's, it's pulled in even the NIV commentary will say that they did this, and put into verse two or sorry, into verse twenty two. And then also some translators will put the heading of the Christian marriage beginning at verse twenty two instead of verse twenty one. And so what we get is inherent in those decisions is like, oh, this is the law forever for all Christian households, broken apart, and it begins with wives submit to your husbands. Who has felt this text that way? before, yes, we have, and yet a little careful study unearths that this section begins with submit to one another. The chapter five begins with submit, surrender, follow the way of Jesus, all people. And so the thing we're talking about is different than the Roman patriarchy, the American patriarchy, and the Artemisian matriarchy, and a total loss of relationships and roles. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something new entirely. So, we're talking about mutual surrender unto one another. Submit yourselves out of reverence for Christ to the other person. And now as you hear this, the example, remember, exhibit A in the context is a marriage relationship. For some of us, that's not where we are in our life. And so this, I think, the principles can be extrapolated because that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, your whole community, remember, in Ephesus is something new, something different. It's not Roman. It's not Artemesian. It's different and new. So we can extrapolate these out to our close Christian relationships. The Christian friendship, if you will, is a place where surrender, healing, confession, camaraderie, and encouragement actually happen. So if we can take off the goggles that have flavored our cultural look at marriage, let's look at this again. It could be read in this context that Uh, Being instead of reading, wives be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. You could read this pulling out the submission which gets pulled in from verse 21. Being subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives or husbands and wives be unto one another as you are to the Lord. How are we then towards the Lord? You see, like a 90s sitcom, there are two dynamics at play. Family Matters, anybody? Full House? In these stories, so clearly, there was an adult dynamic and a kid dynamic. The storylines paralleled until at the end they would intersect and we're like, what, you're actually talking about the same thing? And I think we need to look at that, this text very similarly. The way we act in relationship and surrender to God is paralleled often in some way by the way we are in our relationships. That the struggles I have with control, vulnerability, fear with God go into my close relationships, into my marriage, and these are similar storylines. That my brokenness shows up in both of those places. And so, whether you are in a marriage or in a marriage where this is the way to, to, this this is right in front of you, or not, or in a close friendship, our relationship with God parallels our relationship with others. And so, the dynamics that the Spirit is bringing up in us need to be addressed in both of those places. So we then can be towards one another as we ought to be before the Lord. Now, we don't get off the hook here by just saying. Oh, well, in context, this means there's there's no word for marriage. No. By digging into the context, we realize there is a particular and challenging word for us here. So let's continue to see what fleshes out as we look at marriage as something entirely new. Next slide here. We move forward. Husbands, love your wives, is verse 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, but holy and blameless. Got some like purity culture alarms going on. But if we were a first century historian of the ancient Near East, we'd have some other alarms, which would be Artemis alarms. Because this doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Washing your wife? to make her holy, maybe. No commentary on the shower here, but here's here's what I think is going on. Every year in Ephesus, the statue, the idol of Artemis would be brought down from the temple to the sea. And the priests, all male, would wash the statue, making it clean of any stain, wrinkle, or blemish. And then they would accompany the idol of Artemis back up to the temple. And so what Paul here is saying is not about you must be pure and stainless in a way that we get in our kind of mid-century American context, but something that is truly a challenge and truly beautiful to say, what would it be like to be those who help in the holy making of one another? That as those in relationship, in a marriage relationship, you get to help be a part of the holiness and the sanctification of the other person in a way that is as close as a priest and the thing that is worshipped. We get to be a part of the holy making, the redemption, the sanctification of the other in a way that is not, you must be perfect, to show up to this marriage, but in a way that says, I can companion alongside of you as God makes us holy. It's a little bit different than what I was taught as a kid, but what it means to be pure and blameless. In the same way, the text goes on, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. I'm not, okay, this kind of makes sense. There's a washing and then there's a body piece. But here's what we don't know in this text too, oftentimes, is that the male priests of Artemis um, hurt themselves as part of the worship. The women who were involved would beat these men often. Men who, as part of their act of becoming priests, would, would be castrated as part of that process. And so in the backdrop, right, that changes how we read this. Wait, you, you get to love your body? You don't have to hate it in order to worship? You get to be whole and cared for and loved? That's a different story. And so as you see, Paul is building a case that is not Roman patriarchy nor is it Artemis matriarchy saying there's something new that is happening here. It's two people companioning one another as the spirit works in their midst. They do not have to hate themselves, break themselves for this relationship or religion to work. There's a thing we are seeing emerge and it's mutuality, journeying together, caring for one another, lifting each other up. It's as if Paul is referencing verse 1 and 2. Therefore, follow God's example as those dearly loved. Walk the journey of love. The movement in this text parallels movement in chapter 1 and verse 1. We move together in love and not pain and and needless self-flagellation and sacrifice. But we give ourselves to one another as Christ gives himself to the church. Later in verse 31, we see ourselves called to be one flesh, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Something else is echoing in our structure. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, this same letter, that you who were once divided are now united. We hear Galatians in the background too. In Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, male nor female, but a new creation is happening. So this text is a beautiful example of what it means to be something new together that you could not be a part. But to participate in that, one must surrender to it. Remember, we began surrender or die. Even that feels like an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Life and death I put before you. Choose life so that you might live. To enter into this kind of mutual submission, we need to let go of some things and surrender to the other. Paul is inviting the women in Ephesus to surrender what their particular culture has told them is religiously, rightfully theirs. This this total domination and headship in the spiritual and social space. Paul is asking them, you need to surrender that so that something new can come to life. And a Roman gentleman is reading this first century Mediterranean man. He's saying, wait a minute, this is not the thing I signed up for. I have a lot less power in this relationship than I do over here. Yes, mutual surrender, submission. Nobody gets the bad fruits that the culture has put before them. Neither gets to dominate, inflict pain, or have their way all the time. The thing that Paul is pointing these people to is something new entirely. And rightfully so, we struggle still with this word of surrender or submission. There's so much baggage, and for some of us, there's baggage for really good and very painful reasons. And so this is not something that I think Paul is asking people to do in a relationship that's abusive or manipulative. This is, this is say have, to have a thriving, selfless marriage together. It does require surrender. Some of the relationships that we may be in are not at that place. And that's a different conversation. And we want to have that with you if that's We're available to walk with you through that as pastors and as a church. But The conversation that is happening in Ephesians five is one where we get to surrender to one another. Now, surrender is not powerless. It's not passive in this case. Remember, the one we're following in verse one and two, Jesus Christ, the one who in John chapter 10 says this, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own will. Or later saying, I will lay my life down and I will take it back up again. The thing we're doing in this text is not passive surrender forever. We are active participants in the life of God following the way of Jesus who then is able to self-sacrifice and say, I don't get my way all the time for the good and glory of God and for the washing and cleansing and righteousness of the one I am walking with. I don't get my way all the time. And so we are invited. Whether what's popping up in your mind right now is a marriage relationship, a deep friendship, someone you're engaged to, this this is the playground where we get to become a new creation, where something new entirely begins to break forth into the world, where we get to follow Jesus in this way. So, what do we do with that? Like, what do you do this afternoon? So, recognizing that we are invited into the life of God. The very idea of mutual submission comes from a Trinitarian understanding that we would say Father, Son, and Spirit sit together, next slide, Scott, in a way that, that gives mutual admiration and deference to the other. Before you is Rublev's icon of the Trinity. And you see all three people's heads slightly bowed towards the other as best as you could in a two-dimensional space, saying that the thing we're invited into is the very life of God. Second Peter will tell us that we are partakers of the divine nature. The thing that we are invited into in this Christian marriage thing or in this Christian relationship is to act and be like God, to have our patterns of sin, selfishness, and hiding broken so that we can take on the patterns of the living God, surrendering to one another in love, and therefore we are those who receive the surrender of the other in grace and forgiveness and mutuality and take the journey of sanctification together. This is inherently a risky thing to do. And it's not necessarily always the safe thing to do, but we are being repatterned into the pattern of Jesus. The one who will say in a minute, we will say Christ has died, then what? Christ is? So even out of the death comes resurrection. We're not, the scripture is not acting you to be, asking you to be foolish or careless with your surrender, but as Christ, intentional, Loving and self-giving so that something new can be brought forward into the world. We have this, uh, Teresa of Avila, or Avila, if you will, offers us this quote on surrender. We can only learn to know ourselves and do what we can, namely surrender our will and and fulfill God's will in us. This idea that we are surrendered beings to God and to those around us so that God can bring something new that breaks out of the cultural narratives and options. This question of surrender is something that we can return to. In fact, uh, I continue to lead our formation school here at Mars Hill, and we return to this question quite often, how goes it with your surrender? We are those who are continually surrendering to God. And if you want to learn more about the Formation School, I would love to talk to you. You can also find it on our website, too. We're opening and launching a new cohort this coming September, and applications are open. But how goes it with your surrender to God? We who follow Christ, the surrendered Savior. Here's a quick and not simple, not easy, but it is simple thing that I think we can jump into as a congregation this week. Next slide. Where do we go with this? I'd invite you to take some time this week and in prayer, surrender anew to God. The thing that which gets worked out in our human relationships needs to start somewhere greater. Right? Papa Urkel and Kid Urkel, different planes, got to come together. Start with the Lord. What does it look like for you to have a fresh surrender to the will of God in your life? The one who is good, who is good, who is good. And then prayerfully discern patterns of hiding in control. Where do we self protect in our relationship with God or our relationship with others? Where are those places where you, maybe I overfunction and do everything so nobody can let me down so that I can't feel the love of another person. Where are those things I'm holding so tightly to control of that if, if this goes away or if I'm not in control of this, then all chaos will break loose. We all have these things and the invitation to lay them down And surrender to God first and then figure out how then do we do this with one another? And then if you can name some of those things in the power of the Spirit, confess. Go back to verse 1 and 2. Walk in the way of love. What would it look like for you, particularly if you're in a marriage relationship, to ask the Spirit to help me name some of these patterns of control and hiding or manipulation that are at play in our marriage? And then how then do I name that to the other? I think that's the new thing that Paul is saying can come out of this. How do I I take the step and say, this is a way I tend to be broken in our relationship. I don't want to be that anymore. It doesn't allow a new thing to be birthed. It doesn't allow healing and flourishing the way of Jesus in this relationship a couple words on a screen. It's simple, but it's not at all easy. And so we return to verse one and verse two, where we follow the example of Jesus, who because of the great love of the Father, is able to say, I lay my life down again. In fact, it was Jesus who got his disciples around the table. And he said, I've been teaching you this But now I will show you this. I will make a way in surrender so that you might live. And so what looks like death, out of that comes life. Out of the cross comes the feeding and the healing of the nations. And so I don't want us to read the end of chapter five without the beginning. We do this surrender to one another in the way of Jesus, so the fruit of Jesus may come forward, being repattered into the life of God, into a new story, which we say together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. So, God, it is a right and joyful thing that in all times and in all places we give thanks to you, God of heaven and earth, creator almighty. So we praise you, God. We join our our voices with the angels and archangels of heaven who are singing a hymn around your throne, singing your praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so, Jesus, we look to you as the one who empowers us and models for us. And so would you send your spirit upon this meal that it would be to us the nourishment and the power we need to surrender as you have. And in that spirit, would you raise us to life again? Would you make what we, the meal we are about to partake, not just these simple elements, but would you allow them to be unto us, the communion of the body of Jesus? which you put a fresh spirit in us and repattern us after the ways of you, O Christ. We pray, amen. And so we join the meal that Jesus has served. With his disciples, he gathered round the last night as if to show them what this means. And as he gathered them, he broke the bread. He said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And what began in death then gives life to the world. And after that, Jesus takes the cup. And he poured it saying, this is the new promise, the new covenant in my blood that is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do. We gather around. We have four tables around here. You can come up front and be served and make this a time to worship and to pray. We have Prayer counselors in the back who love to pray with you. Prayer walls around the room where you can write a prayer and put it in and know that our staff will join with you in prayer. And so as the Spirit of God is stirring in you, would you come and take and eat and be renewed in hope and in spirit? For this is the new story. This is the something new entirely that we are participating in individually and relationally. And we speak this story together. We say that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So come, friends, take and eat. Receive who you are, the body of Christ.